This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to thedispatch.com to sign up for newsletters to see original uh, web content, including a really great piece by uh, a Remnant favorite, Lyman Stone. He has a piece going after the World Health Organization and why it really does deserve a lot of the blame that it's getting and a lot of the criticism that it's getting. Um, oh, and so today's episode of The Remnant is brought to you by our friends at DoorDash. More about them in a little bit. So uh, today we have um, a guest that I've only been introduced to fairly recently. Um, he uh, came to us by way of suggestion from a, from a listener. Um, we get suggestions from listeners a lot for guests on the show. Um, but usually, um, I'm familiar with their stuff or, um, I'm friends with them or I'm enemies with them or something like that. And this one was a really great suggestion. And, uh, please, if you guys have suggestions for outside the box guests, we're, we're eager to have them. Uh, today's, uh, guest on the remnant is Dr. Kyle Harper. He is professor of classics and letters and senior vice president and provost at the university of Oklahoma. Uh, Dr. Re- Dr. Harper's research is focused on the social and economic history of the period spanning in the Roman Empire and the early Middle Ages. He has a great piece up at time about uh, pandemics and plagues and their effect on history. His most recent book is from 2017, and it's The Fate of Rome, Climate, Disease, and the End of an Empire. Uh, Dr. Harper, who I'll now start calling Kyle, welcome to The Remnant. Thanks for having me, Jonah. It's a privilege to be here. Excited to, to talk and great to meet you. I'll thank my buddy, Justin, who put us in touch. Yes, all, all praise and honor to Justin uh, for, for setting this up. And um, I, didn't want, I didn't know if he would want to be named, but since you're, he's an old friend of yours, if he didn't want to be named, you're the guy who got I can get away with it. me. Yeah, so let's sort of start. We're going to do our due diligence on the COVID stuff and all that, but um, – uh, you actually are, you had a really interesting piece in time, in time magazine about epidemics and their, their role in history and all of that kind of stuff. And you're an expert in large part on the Roman empire. You have a book out about that. 
Um, but to answer the, the $64,000 question, um, which we all know comes from Monty Python. What have the Romans ever done for us? This is, this is every Roman historian's favorite question, whether they'll admit it or not. Uh, and it's one of the, the great scenes in film history. And uh, of course, the, as the, the Judean Liberation Front uh, finds out that the Roman Empire brought uh, roads and, and aqueducts and amphitheaters and all of those things. But uh, one, of the, one of the additions I make uh, in some of my recent work is what have the Romans ever done for us? They also got us sick. Uh, we know that the the Roman Empire was a uh, was a germs dream, and infectious microbes loved the Roman roads. They loved the the Roman crowds. They loved the Roman cities. And there's a lot of evidence that the the Roman Empire brought new diseases to the to the places it conquered. So, uh, in the long list of what the Romans have ever done for us, we can add brought us new diseases and built up herd immunity over millennia. <laughs> did not practice social distancing no. <laughs> yeah um yeah so I mean, it, it's interesting there's this you know as you know probably much better than i do i mean i got into all this stuff with my last book um there's there's this sort of revisiting of the idea of whether or not the agricultural revolution was actually good for humans um because and it, it's it's a little more complicated than that because i think i think everybody kind of agrees in the long run it was good for humans uh, but in the immediate term, it was actually bad for a lot of individual human beings because like actual diet suffer, you know, Yuval Harari makes this point. Lots of people make this point that the average diet for humans actually got worse with the rise of agriculture, but the total production of calories available to sustain a population got better. And you also got cities and all of that out of it. But one of the things that you learn about that transition is, is that Cities would pop up all the time and then some plague would run through them and just devastate them and people would leave them behind for a while. Um, what were the great sort of great plagues of – I mean that's kind of a tragic way of putting it. But uh, what, were the, what were the most important plagues of, of antiquity and how did they sort of change the, the course of the Roman Empire and, and our transition to where we are today? Right. Well, the, the, the idea that you used to frame the, that question goes back ultimately to the, to the anthropologist Marshall Saitlins, who uh, romanticized hunter-gatherer societies and called them the original affluent society. And like a lot of uh, big historical ideas, the, the truth is, is somewhere in the middle, that um, hunter-gatherer societies weren't uh, idyllic, peaceful um, disease-free paradises. They were, they had their own diseases, and um, people people often starved and went hungry when when the uh, herds they were hunting moved on, or when there was a, a drought. And because people were were desperate for food, humans eventually slowly learned to, to domesticate crops. But that did bring new and more and worse diseases. And so uh, there's a very deep pattern that, in a lot of ways, human progress. Uh, brings on uh, worse health environments, that as there are more of us living in denser cities, uh, living around animals, more interconnected, it's made us better hosts from a germs perspective. And so when we started living around each other permanently, surrounded by our own muck, we got a lot of diseases that are transmitted in, in waste and fecal matter. Uh, kind of disgusting to think about, but it's part of the, the kind of paradox of human progress. When we started living in megacities with 
millions of people and made it a lot easier for pathogens to get from my lungs to your lungs when I sneezed or coughed. And so we have a lot of respiratory diseases, especially viruses. And so there's a very old pattern of every increment of human progress brings with it uh, a kind of downside to, to our health until you get to the to the modern period. And maybe we'll come back to that. But you asked about the, the Roman Empire, which is in many ways a, a lunge forward in terms of economic development. The Roman Empire uh, is a pre-industrial economy and is relatively poor compared to to those of us lucky enough to live in modern times. But still, the Roman Empire sees a great leap forward in trade and commerce, uh, in technology, diffusion, and this benefits the ordinary unskilled laborer who's kind of the ordinary Roman. But at the same time, it also uh, is bad for, for their health. And one way we see this is simply in the bones and the kind of skeletons that, that we have in abundance. And the Romans are actually short. Uh, they're shorter than the, the Iron Age people who came before them and actually shorter than the, the early Middle Age people who come after them. Uh, so the, um, the Roman Empire kind of sees a general downgrading of health, but maybe more dramatically, it sees giant pandemic events. And a, a pandemic is a is a disease outbreak that travels over multiple regions. So not just an epidemic, but something that goes, say, across continents. And this happens to the Romans repeatedly. And it's it's in some ways kind of new. We don't have a whole lot of evidence for pandemics before the Roman Empire, but one strikes at the very height of Rome's power in the second century called the Antonine Plague. It may be smallpox, another in the third century. And then maybe most importantly in the 6th century, what we call the Justinianic plague, which is the bubonic plague. It's the same germ that causes the Black Death. It's maybe the worst germ ever. And uh, it's a rodent disease that for some reason uh, is able to infect humans. It's a very versatile bacterium uh, and it causes devastation on a scale that, that I think exceeded anything that came before it. It's kind of like the first Black Death. So the Romans build this great empire, but sort of unintentionally, uh, the the germs benefit just as much as the the inhabitants of the empire do. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been reading up as a lot of people are on the Black Death, because it's, it's what you do when you're locked away. <laughs> and, you know, one of the things I think is kind of fascinating is how, you know, there were a lot of good things that came out of the plague. I mean the 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 the, the medieval one, not the Romans one. I'm, but that's where I'm coming from with this, is that you know you had such a devastating loss of manpower. Wages went up. You had um, the creation of uh, all sorts of property rights that uh, we still have with us today. Um, you had you know one of the points that my economist friends make, and I think they're absolutely right about about the response to COVID right now is that you can't look at it as Schumpeterian creative destruction, right? It's not like the businesses that were failing were inefficient or had bad business models that, you know, it's, it's not their fault. It's like you wouldn't blame the corner grocery if it got hit by a meteor, right? There's normal dynamic uh, creative destruction of capitalism doesn't take into account these kinds of things. And you can't blame firms for not being able to adapt. That said, you actually did have the – this is sort of a um, 
Mansur Olson kind of point, you did have the, the, the crushing of a lot of institutions and, and rules that were holding societies back, uh, gotten away with, you know, during the, the Black Death. Was there a lot of that in ancient Rome? Did Rome get better because of some of these plagues? What were some of the changes that were like created because of it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a big question. And I think to, to say that the... We got time. A plague is good. <laughs> is, uh, you know, it's a little like saying, um, well, the flood was good from Noah's point of view. Um, sure. uh, it, it was no. really good but from the fish's point of view. <laughs> the fish loved it. Um, <laughs> but, but most people um, didn't didn't do so well. So the um, the Black Death is kind of unique. And, and I think in general, um, most plagues don't have... Uh, sort of positive, unintended consequences. And even the Black Death has very different effects in different places. So um, to, to say that the Black Death has positive effects is... I'm talking silver linings here. I'm not saying like two, you, you know, three cheers for the Black Death. I'm just saying, well, you know... Well, let's say one cheer. If you're, if you're an <laughs> English peasant, um, yeah. and it's, it's actually has the kind of opposite effect in Eastern Europe and parts of the Near East... And what's strange about the Black Death is it's it sort of uh, reshuffles the deck. You would have never guessed in 1340, uh, a few years before the Black Death arrived, that England would end up being the the um, heartland of the the miracle of modern growth. Um, in fact, it's a backwater, and um, much less um, dynamic than Italy or Egypt, um, and. Uh, and the Black Death doesn't immediately vault England into the lead by any stretch, but it does. Most economic historians sort of go back to the Black Death as the beginning of a series of changes, many of which are institutional, like you were describing, um, in the rise of kind of free labor that, that's ultimately part of the, the developmental pathway that leads to, to England's ascent and modern growth. But in the Roman case, uh, I tend to think that the the plagues don't have a lot of silver lining. Um, we don't see wages go up, um, and it doesn't, I think, lead to kind of institutional improvement. The Roman Empire, one of the things that it caused the Roman Empire and its economy to grow was that it did have pretty, pretty favorable institutions. So it has strong property rights. Um, it has pretty strong financial institutions um, in some ways that are not equaled again until the very late Middle Ages. Um, and the, the plagues don't help institutional development or economic growth in the Roman Empire. If anything, they disrupt the, the patterns of trade that had kind of been the, the source of the Roman Empire's dynamism. So I think ultimately the, the plagues have a, a negative impact on the Roman Empire. Now, the bigger, the bigger picture is that, that plagues have all sorts of different impacts. Sometimes they, they do, like the Black Death, have silver linings. Other times they kind of Send, send economies into a, a tailspin. I think what's, what's interesting to me as a historian of epidemics, looking at the, the COVID uh, pandemic that's unfolding around us is just how, how unprecedented it is. Um, and I know that's kind of a, a weasel answer for a historian to say um, that we can't find good parallels for this. But part of the, the accomplishment of modernity is is establishing control over infectious diseases. Most people before 1900 in America die of infectious diseases. 
And that's been true of most humans throughout the history of our species. We live in this tiny, weird little slice of modernity where even though we don't think about it, our lives, everything we do, uh, our habits, our routines, our chemicals, they keep all of our dangerous microbes at bay. And so if you live in the developed world, most days you don't worry about dying of diarrhea or some terrible pox or plague. It's one of the, the great advantages of, of living in our world. We we eat too much and don't exercise and, and die of cardiovascular disease and cancers and things like that, but not microbes. Um, and yet our control over infectious disease is incomplete. Um, and there are kind of vulnerabilities that, that we still have and a respiratory virus that we don't have a vaccine for was always one of the, the big risks. And in some ways we just got lucky uh, for a long period of time. And something like this was, was very likely to happen at one point or another. And um, so now we, we live in a world where we're, all of our assumptions are built on the, the expectation that we can control infectious diseases. And we're sort of being rudely reminded that, that nature um, is going to keep experimenting. And, uh, and so we don't have a whole lot of precedent for what a, a 21st century interdependent global capitalist economy uh, will, how it will react to, to a shock of this magnitude. Yeah, no, it's funny, uh, maybe not in a ha-ha way, but, um, you know, the the big chunk of the theme of the last book I wrote was on how um, sort of was was an extended riff on the poet Horace. You know, when Horace says, you can chase nature out with a pitchfork, it'll always come rushing back in. And, um, you know, that's true as a sort of laws of entropy or second law of thermodynamics stuff. But the pandemic is kind of a really good example of how, because you talk about how we've carved out this tiny slice of modernity where we're basically in this oasis where we're not dying of infectious diseases. I talk about this with college kids all the time. You know, uh, you know, Calvin Coolidge, his own son when he was president, got a blister on his foot while playing tennis on the White House tennis courts and died a week later. And that wasn't that remarkable a thing at the time. Even 100 years ago, it was normal in America for people to experience the death of at least one child, you know, and that was incredibly normal going back in, in, in history. And so the flooding in of this totally natural animal born disease into this, you know, sort of oasis that we've carved in the jungle of history and of human history is a really good teachable moment. If we learn the right lessons from it, um, I'm not entirely clear that we will. Um, but, uh, so going back to Rome, um, uh, you know, it's a, this is a difficult question to figure out how to ask. Um, I'm so I'm a partisan of the Catholic Church, even though I am not Catholic. I, I like Catholics. I married one, um, but you know, my defense of the Catholic Church has always been that it is, for all of its manifest flaws that are well documented over the course of its existence. Um, it has been less a drag on human development than a sale, right? It has been helping drive humanity towards something better more than and, – and regulating human behavior in ways that are 
net a net benefit compared not to the way we live now necessarily, but to the way we lived prior to his existence. And that's sort of my same view of the Roman Empire. There was lots of stuff that by today's sort of Whiggish standards of liberty and freedom and, and human rights and decency, that Rome was just utterly barbaric. But I've always seen it as a step forward from where humanity was prior to his existence. So in that context, are you a partisan for ancient Rome? Do you think they were an improvement over the Greeks? Um, do Do you think they set us on a path towards greater human progress? Or do you think that they were more of a drag on it? Yeah, well, th- there's one part of your question that's easy. The Romans are much cooler than the Greeks. I mean, that's just <laughs> that's just an objective fact that anybody who looks at the the evidence with a rational and open mind um, would, would be led to. Conclude. But do you just mean because like the sword and sandal movies are much more interesting than a bunch Definitely, of guys standing around? Right. You, okay. Exactly. What's your What's your favorite movie about about classical Greece? You can't You can't do it. Um, that so, one with John Travolta, I think. Oh, I'm sorry, different movie. Anyway, <laughs> different one. Um, so, you know, to the Romans, of course, if you want to um, take it and try and assess, you know, what are the what are the bad things about the Romans? You can you can come up with a a long list. I personally think that um, feeding people to to lions for their religious beliefs is um, is a fairly bad idea. Um, crucifying uh, people who teach a gospel of love is is not altogether um, one of the the highlights of of human civilization. So um, the the military conquests are are extraordinarily savage, and the the ability of the Romans to um, to foster a kind of indifference to to human exploitation and suffering is is very real. And I wrote my first book on slavery in the Roman Empire, and the, the Romans create one of the, the really extensive slave systems in human history. So freedom isn't for, for everybody in the Roman Empire. But but interestingly, the Romans, I think, compared to, to many societies, have a capacity to criticize um, their own flaws from within. And so you think of the, the great Latin historian Tacitus, um, who gives voice to one of the the Britons that the Romans vanquish, um, and the famous line: "the the Romans make a desert and call it peace," um, uh, which is a, a pretty um, you know cold blooded critique or assessment of of what Roman imperialism must have looked like if you were on the uh, the receiving end, uh, and yet that comes from a from a Roman senator who's um, trying to to take a perspective that that a lot of societies don't. So. Um, I think most most human pre-modern societies are um, are violent and have, have built-in tendencies to um, to exploit when and where they can. Um, and what's actually historically interesting are norms of of law and norms of limitations of power. And um, in those in that sense, I think the Romans do contribute uh, an enormous amount to to the history of of society of human progress and roman law is is an amazing accomplishment the idea that there can be um, a kind of objective rational system of rules that can restrain um, the way humans interact with each other and the way the state interacts with its citizens um, is is an amazing accomplishment and so uh, you think of the the long-reaching influence of roman legal and constitutional norms and that's objectively remarkable 
uh, as a contribution to human progress. So are, so is, I think this is maybe where you're going, is Christianity. And Christianity is a paradoxical contribution of the Roman Empire, right? I mean, it's born uh, in uh, uh, the corner of the Roman Empire where a Roman uh, governor crucifies the, the founder of the religion. Uh, and the Roman Empire proceeds mostly to to persecute the the movement for some three centuries um, before paradoxically a Roman emperor converts to Christianity and then the the apparatus of the state helps to to promote the religion. Uh, but you know Christianity is in many ways an expression of of the kind of best values of the Roman Empire, the cosmopolitanism. Think of the the ideas of Paul, that there isn't a Jew and a Greek, there isn't a free and a slave, there isn't a male and a female, but all human beings are, are one. And there are, there are already sort of tendencies of, in the same spirit in Stoicism in the Roman Empire. And um, Christianity sort of encapsulates the best of some of those ideas of um of how what what human dignity is, and so in the fourth century, which is the period that I've mostly studied, you do start to see for the first time, uh, I think, very strong arguments about the universality of human dignity, and so the first real critiques of slavery originate in the the later Roman Empire, and people start to argue slavery is inherently wrong because it violates the inherent freedom and dignity that is the birthright of every single human being. And and I think, you know, historians should try and tease out what are the what are the limits of an ancient civilization, what are its contributions. And um, you don't study the the Roman Empire without, I think, at least having some ability to admire these these very real contributions. Um I, I want to get to the to Christianity in a second, but um one of the things I so one of the things I'm kind of fascinated by is uh, this is an argument that uh, an economist Michael Munger made, or at least that's where I first heard it, um, that the that slavery is an institution in the West, and you just tell me where if I'm getting this wrong, because I'm just trying to summarize it, but I, I'd be interested in your take. Um, one of the great things about this podcast is I am always open to being in error. Um, but uh, uh, that slavery, you know, which was an institution that existed basically in every civilization since the agricultural revolution to one extent or another, um, you can actually argue that it wasn't a natural institution because in hunter-gatherer societies, slavery was more problematic, um, at least for male slaves, because you didn't want to take captured soldiers and have them kill you in the middle of the night. Um, but, uh, and that's one of the major downsides, right, of the agricultural revolution is that it created an economy that was well adapted to slavery. Anyway, um, that that for a long time, slavery in the sort of creeping up on the modern era was seen more of as a Roman institution. And that's the way it first took hold in the American South because, uh, you know, there were indentured servants and there were black slaves and it was much more, you know, they tried to make slaves out of Indians. And the arguments really were in the Roman tradition. And then because that became increasingly untenable, given the founding principles of this country, the, the, the Southern intellectuals had to go back to Aristotle and the Greek notion of slavery, which said that you're, you are, some people are slaves by nature, right? That you're born a slave by nature. And 
um, you know, in Rome, you weren't necessarily born a slave, right? You had to be made a slave. And, um, and so it's sort of like a pre-eugenics, pre-biological racism notion that actually comes back from Aristotle. Um, but is that actually true that throughout the whole course of Roman history, you weren't, there weren't people who were born, a slave, born as slaves? There weren't slave classes that were intergenerational? How did slavery actually work on a, on a sort of nuts and bolts basis in Rome? Right. Well, there's, there's a lot of truth to what you're talking about. Let me, let me clarify uh, how I would understand a couple of points, though. I mean, so I think the basic notion that there are different ideologies of slavery in Greece and Rome is correct and very important. So Aristotle who isn't really necessarily representative of the way all the Greeks thought. He's just one important Greek thinker. Did He's argue, a good marquee name. He fills seats. He's, you know? He fills seats. He's a headliner. Uh, and you know, you know who we're talking about. But he says that some people are slaves by nature. And these are barbarians who uh, didn't have the good fortune to be born Greek. And so they're not the, the big, rational, healthy... Um, naturally free Greeks. They're these kind of, you know, slobbering, um, ignorant, knuckle-dragging barbarians who really um, need to be led around uh, by a Greek mind. And um, so for, for Aristotle, it's a, it's a quasi-ethnic concept. It's not yet modern racism, although it would be adaptable to, to racist ideologies. Whereas the Romans... Um, you're right, don't have a strong sense that anyone particularly is uh, a slave by nature. Uh, slaves are made that way. They're the people who had the, the bad luck to be defeated by the Romans and the good luck to be spared. And there's even a, a kind of false etymology in the, the Latin word for slave, servus, um, that these are the people who were spared um, from being executed in the field of battle. That's that's an ideology. Um, it lets the Romans imagine that the the people that they own uh, are people who've been captured by their military machine and given a, a kind of extension on life in this lesser form. Um, but like I, all ideologies, it's it's only partly true. And probably in parts of Roman history. A lot of their slaves did come from military conquest. And so you think of the, the age of Julius Caesar, um, where there's a, um, a, a famous quote that's probably not totally accurate, that he um, killed a million Gauls and enslaved a million Gauls. Um, and there, the truth to that is that in the period when the Roman Empire is growing, it takes huge numbers of people into slavery. And so think of you know Spartacus, which is a, a great movie. And... Uh, and a true, a true episode in history where um, you had so many slaves who'd been captured at once being brought into Italy that they band together and rebel and face down the Roman army uh, in the field of battle. But this, this is only true at times. We know that in Roman law, if you were born to a slave woman, you were a slave. And probably more Romans were born into slavery than were ever captured as slaves. Um, but still the ideology tells the Romans a story that, that in their mind justifies the, the slave system. But it does have these interesting longer term consequences because the Romans don't need to imagine that people are, are naturally inferior and necessarily deserve to be enslaved. And Roman law is, you know, 
extensively allows slavery, but doesn't um, doesn't sort of degrade people by saying that some people deserve to be um, slaves because of their something about their biology or their nature. Um, then what happens in the modern world um, is these ideologies are reborn, twisted, um, changed, adapted in various ways. The Roman slave system, unfortunately, because the Romans are, are idealized from the Renaissance onward, um, in the early modern period, the, the fact that the Romans had owned slaves is used as a way to justify, to say that slavery is just. Um, and then um, it gets sort of um, melded with racism. And this is where you get these Aristotelian ideas that are sort of reborn in a very different global context where you have transatlantic trade and the rise of scientific racism. So um, these are kind of ghost ideologies in the modern world. I am not one of these people who is obsessed with retroactively imposing um, modern ideological concepts on ancient times, right? I mean, slavery obviously was evil. It's an evil institution. I am – whenever it comes up for a floor vote, I'm a nay. But uh, at the same time – you're, you know, judging people from the moral principles of today when it was an institution that had been around in every, almost every society and seemed utterly natural. And as you say, seemed like to some people like an act of generosity or, or magnanimity when you're like sparing someone's life and saying, okay, you can live, but you'll just have to be my slave. Um, it's sort of silly to go back and, and retroactively say that everyone was evil um, because of that. At the same time, on con- the concept of racism, right? There's the there's been a bit of debate lately because people like Steven Pinker and and me um, and a few others have been defending the Enlightenment, and a bunch of people have been attacking the Enlightenment because it created notions, among other things. J- Jamel Bowie, you know, makes this argument that the Enlightenment created notions of uh, scientific racism and all that, and I think that's actually a fair criticism that you can trace those ideas back to then. Was there a concept of racism in ancient in the ancient world that was recognizable to how we talk about racism today? What I mean is like obviously there were ethnic hatreds and ethnic bigotries, right? But was there this grand ideological concept of racism? I'm sure this question comes up from students with you about how to like understand this stuff. It does, and it's something that experts in Roman history debate. So there's not a, uh, a kind of single point of view on, on the question. Uh, I myself would, would tend to answer exactly as you were suggesting, that there's all sorts of ethnic prejudice, uh, but that those are, are something different from what we, what we mean by, by modern racism. So um, the Romans don't have the, the same kind of um, theoretical framework for sort of biological race. Um, and uh, that doesn't mean that they're, they can't sometimes think of people in other groups as different and inferior. And there's, a, there's an important um, sort of 4th century BC is actually a Greek text um, that is called the Heirs, Waters, Places. It's in the Hippocratic, it's a medical text um, that does sort of say, look, people from Asia um, are influenced by the Asian climate, and so they're they're soft and uh, effeminate naturally because of the, the 
sort of influence of the environment. And so yeah, that's probably as close as you get in the ancient world to, to sort of ideas that different climatic zones could shape societies and the people within it in different ways that made them fundamentally different. And of course, the the vision of that text is that the Greeks are perfect and they're in the middle. And so they're kind of the superior um, ethnic group. Um, but it's even then it's sort of climate determinism. And that's probably as close as you get to anything resembling biological racism. I really, I think that um, that there's something distinct that starts to happen in the, the 16th century that's, that's really kind of new under the sun in the way that, that people can take scientific frameworks to, to impose sort of essentialism on different human groups and in a hierarchical way that then is used to justify um, the exploitation of, of a different group. So I, I tend to fall into the camp that, that racism, while it has, like almost anything, um, some kind of roots in a deeper past, um, is, is something new under the sun in the, the modern world. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, my take is humans have a natural propensity to prejudice against strangers. And there are all sorts of markers or tells that allow people to identify strangers. And so the idea that like the day-to-day stuff that gets called racism, bigotry against other people, xenophobia, ethnic, you know, prejudice and all that kind of stuff, that is baked into human history and human nature and goes all the way back. But, you know, there are these specific doctrines of racism that have a much more modern flavor to them. I thought it was really fascinating when I was working on stuff about nationalism. If you read Johann Fichte, Fichte? I, I know I pronounced it wrong, um, who's like considered one of the fathers of nationalism, he gives this, this, this major address called A Letter to the German People where he wants the Germans to unify. And one of his big arguments is, is that the Germans – particularly the German language was the only major European language not to be poisoned by the filth of Latin society and Latin Latin language and the Romance languages and all that stuff. And what is amazing about it is, is that although he had some anti-Semitic stuff going on, he basically wasn't about anything that we would identify as racism today. It was that this marker for bigotry was all wired in or, or us versus themism was all wired into language. But it sounded so similar to the stuff that the biological races in Germany would be doing a century, a century and a half later, that you can see why they were so receptive to it. You know, there was just the the the, the sort of categorical frameworks of these the sort of these mud people, these unpure people who were tainted by the Romans, unlike us, um, and the evidence of this in the language, and unlike the disgusting, you know, slovenly, slatternly. French language and all this kind of stuff. You can see how just it was a flip of a switch to say, okay, it really wasn't about language. It was really about genes or blood or whatever. Um, but getting back to uh, um, ancient Rome and, and Christianity, um, so one of the things I always sort of focus on is is how prior to the rise of monotheism and really the sort of spread of Christianity – gods were really gods were servants of people right you had a god for fertility you had a god for you know crops you had a god for war you had a god for peace you had a god for this for that and all that kind of stuff and basically if you if you bribed them enough you got allegedly you got what you wanted and then monotheism comes along and says no 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 we don't i don't work for you you work for me 
And that was a huge psychological change in the way humanity um, saw itself. Um, uh, can you sort of talk me through about how, you know, one of the criticisms I get a lot is I didn't focus enough when I was writing Suicide of the West on how basically modernity and liberal democratic capitalism and, and all good things, you know, stuffed crust pizza, um, really comes from the early transition the rise of Christianity and monotheism in ancient Rome, you know, connect you know, connect the dots the way you see it between how we get to 16th and 17th century uh, emergence of, you know, Scottish Enlightenment or English Enlightenment goodness uh, from ancient Rome. Yeah, boy, there's a lot there. And um, I do in 30 think, seconds, uh, in 30 seconds, <laughs> I do think the. Uh, so monotheism, liberalism, um, human rights in 30 seconds. Um, you can take as long as you like. You uh, I'd say you, you just need um, Christianity plus John Locke, um, <laughs> the end. Uh, the, yeah, the uh, religion, religion obviously is a really important mediator of, of the kind of in the history of values. And um, Roman polytheism you you described it as the gods working for you i think i would describe it more as a as sort of a um, mob boss system right the, the the mob bosses are powerful but you have to kind of um, pay them off to to get their protection uh, and they're very fickle and unpredictable and violent and if you don't give them you know enough goats or whatever you're going to get a plague or a, a drought and a famine um, and the the sort of idea of polytheism is that the gods are very real they're they're countless but they're also in nature uh, they exist in the in the physical world they're over there on mount olympus or they they live in that cave um, and they're they're fundamentally a part of the the physical natural world that we inhabit and in a lot of ways the great difference with judeo-christian monotheism is the, the triumph of a different ideal of what a divinity is, that God is uh, transcendent and outside the creation, uh, but rather the creation is something that that um, a transcendent God has has made, um, has made time and space itself. And um, ultimately in Christianity, at the core of that uh, is also a, a vision of the human being as a, a fundamentally dignified creature made in the image of God. And so um, I think that some of the, the things I was talking about earlier in the fourth and fifth century, you start to see, for instance, criticisms of slavery as an institution, which the Greeks and the Romans had been completely willing to, to accept as always legitimate and just. Um, and now you have people I'm saying that it's no matter what fundamentally a violation of the the dignity of the human being because every human being is is a creature of God made in the the image and likeness of God meaning that they're moral rational free um, individuals and people start talking like that in the fourth century um, and and so you know there's different views on you're kind of fast forwarding skip over a millennium and a half. Um, the Enlightenment is the Enlightenment uh, a turn away from that? Is it a, a radically secular phenomenon, top to bottom, uh, that that represents a kind of liberation from uh, religion um, and superstition and um, all those those things that that benighted human beings had believed for millennia that um, we're finally free of, 
um, and science and secularism triumphing over um, superstition and religion and um, you know organized superstition. Uh, I think that's one way to look at it. Uh, another is to to read um, the the core texts of the Enlightenment, whether you're talking about a John Locke or an Immanuel Kant, um, and see them as um, efforts to to use reason to to affirm some of the the same fundamental values, like the the natural freedom and inherent dignity of the individual. And like any like any great debate, um, you can probably find. Um, texts that support both readings. Um, there are there is a radical secular enlightenment, no doubt, um, and a lot of the energy of the enlightenment does come from the the energy of being liberated from um, the kind of constriction of having to think within certain boundaries. And um, science does um, challenge some of the the kind of cosmology and worldview of late medieval and early modern religion, uh, but at the same time. When, when Kant is writing about the, the fundamental um, inherent worth of the individual that um, is um, you know, inviolable and the, the importance of treating every human being as an end rather than a means to an end. Um, and you think of that as kind of the core of, liberal, um, of liberalism. Um, that, that's a system of values that may emerge um, from his head and may have a, a good rational case, but is also uh, echoes centuries and centuries of Christian teaching that ultimately is pretty similar um, in terms of some of its fundamental values. So I think, um, you know, you can look at it both ways. I tend to, to think of the Enlightenment as, as sort of the combination of both of those. It is secularizing in certain ways. And the triumph of um, empirical science as a way to try and understand the natural world uh, is something that's distinctive and I think a, an accomplishment of the modern world. But um, but I don't think it happens um, outside of a, a very old system of values, and I don't think that it's unindebted to, to centuries of of Christianity. <laughs> Can you hear my kids screaming? Yeah, we can. It's okay. It's, this is a pro-family podcast. It's all right. Um, I want to come back to the religion thing in a second, but I, I, I guess I think your formulation of the gods being like mob bosses is better because, you know, servant suggests station and mob boss still maintains the transactional nature of things. Mob bosses do have to live off their clients, right? And as 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 Neil Gaiman says in American Gods, uh, you are what you believe and you have to like feed these gods. Um, uh, and so like the gods aren't just like people who are doing fee for service, like the great people at DoorDash. No, but more seriously, or maybe not more seriously, uh, in this pandemic, uh, DoorDash has actually been, um, almost like a gift from the gods. Uh, we've been using it at my house quite a bit. Uh, the delivery guys and gals, have been heroic. Um, I've been over tipping like crazy with these people because of what they're doing is actually really important. Um, and it's amazing how many more restaurants have gotten on board DoorDash just since this pandemic started because it's a lifeline for them. So obviously if you're pressed for, you know, if you're under real financial strain right now, it may not make sense for you. 
But if you're also just looking for a break or looking to, um, you know, reserve your larder for future days, uh, DoorDash provides some really great opportunities, particularly if you have kids and you're just looking for somehow, you know, to break the monotony or satisfy everybody in a, you know, in a family group. You want Chinese, they want pizza, and someone is craving Froyo. There's something for everyone on DoorDash. DoorDash is the app that brings you food you're craving right now, right to your door. Uh, a lot of the places now, the policy is, including at DoorDash, they actually leave it right out front of your door, which I think makes a lot of sense. Uh, ordering is easy. Open the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat, and your food will be left safely outside your door with the new contactless delivery drop-off setting. With over 300,000 partners in the U.S., Puerto Rico, Canada, and Australia, you can support your local go-tos or choose from the favorite from your favorite national restaurant chains like Chipotle, Wendy's, and the Cheesecake Factory. Many of your favorite local restaurants are still open for delivery. Just open the DoorDash app, select your favorite local restaurant, and your food will be left at your door. Again, DoorDash deliveries are now contactless to keep communities that they serve in safe. Right now, our listeners, that means you, can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more and zero delivery fees for their first month when you download the DoorDash app and enter code REMNANT. Not Dingo, REMNANT. That's $5 off your first order and zero delivery fees for a month when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store and enter code REMNANT. R-E-M-N-A-N-T. Don't forget, that's Remnant for $5 off your first order with DoorDash. We thank DoorDash for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant and for being there for us during these trying times. All right, so for uh, this is purely for uh, premium conservative nerd uh, um, bonus material uh, uh and you know, normal listeners are free to fast forward at this point and come back in in about four minutes. But um, since you're one of the few people who could, I get to talk to who can actually answer this question in any in any depth, um, there is a rich tradition on the right. Uh, the most famous famous intellectual practitioner of this is a guy who's. Um, uh, name I owe. I, there's a huge debate about how to pronounce, but I'll just say Eric Vogelin or Vogelin and or Vogelin, uh, and he he's the guy who Buckley borrowed from to make famous the phrase "immunitize the Eschaton. and uh, Vogelin, but also I think Richard Weaver and a few others made these arguments that basically, and I love these things even though I think they're basically fanciful. Um, that liberalism or progressivism or whatever you want to call it, leftism, uh, were uh, Gnostic heresies born <laughs> um, centuries ago that have lived on ever since. And 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 immunitize the eschaton is basically a fancy way of saying uh, make a heaven on earth, right? Take what is reserved for the hereafter and bring it into the here and now. And um, and is the cardinal sin of all sorts of. Uh, progressive movements going back a very long time. I love all this stuff. I can ramble about it. Um, 
I, 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 I love the idea of secret knowledge and all of that kind of stuff. But what exactly did the Gnostics believe and who were they? Because I, you know, I, I, it's one of these things I've done a lot of reading on, and and it's it's like understanding the federal funds rate. It stays in my head for about an hour, and then like a good Chinese meal, I'm hungry again. So, can you explain who the Gnostics were? Am I pronouncing it right? Is it a hard G, like in GIF? Is it a silent G? Anywhere you want to go, but explain it's, to people who the Gnostics were. The and what easiest is part of that question is that it's a silent G. Uh, the, <laughs> the easiest way to explain the Gnostics is if you could combine um, Platonism, Christianity, and LSD, uh, then then you kind of get there. It's Gnosticism is a, a kind of set of religious movements that happen in the Roman Empire. Some of them are more Jewish. Some of them are more pagan. Some of them end up being Christian and seeing Jesus as a kind of um, hippie teacher of enlightenment who wanted you to transcend your embodiment, um, but not in a in a kind of Catholic sacramental um, resurrection of the body sort of way, but in a let's like free the the human divine spark um, that that the real God implanted in us. So most of the Gnostic cosmologies, which are where it gets really really trippy and harder to understand than the Fed. Uh, involve a rejection of the the Genesis story in which God is the creator. They involve all sorts of weird dimensions of different divinities. Some of them are good, some of them are bad, but the good one puts a spark in you, kind of sometimes secretly, that a, a teacher of enlightenment has to come and tell you how to to liberate and free so that you can um, shuffle off your your physical body and rejoin the the light. That's the that's the brief version of Gnosticism. We don't really totally understand why it it happens to get attached to Christianity. So there are there are kind of Gnostic ideas floating around, and these really are flavored by Platonism, uh, and and somehow this gets this gets crossed with Christianity and it proves kind of electrifying. And so there are a lot of Christian Gnostics around who say, um, look, Jesus was this, this kind of uh, trippy teacher of enlightenment liberation. And um, that was his secret message. And if you really knew the guy, um, he kept these secret teachings and um, the stuff that those um, kind of Catholic Christians who want to um, baptize you and feed you the, uh, the bread and wine and talk to you about the resurrection of the body. That's not the real stuff he taught. Um, if you were an initiate, he had these secret teachings and I'm the one who preserves those. So somehow that, that gets, um, catches on really pretty early in the history of Christianity. And you have a kind of centuries long struggle between Christians who believe that their version of Christianity based on these sort of secret teachings or inner teachings that were reserved for the real, real inner circle um, versus uh, what we now think of as the, the Orthodox Catholic version of Christianity. Of course, both sides thought that they were Orthodox at the time. Um, and again, we, we don't really totally know how, how this caught fire so quickly, but um, if, if you have a, an Orthodox perspective, it's a, it's a fire that burns for a very long time and takes a lot of energy and time for, for the Orthodox Church to stamp out. It, it's, doesn't and it keeps coming back. Easily. I mean, there's St. Augustine is yelling at the Gnostics and 
at least there are some people who think that Jan yeah. Hus was a Gnostic. You know, he, he, yeah. go, like, he keeps yeah, coming I mean, and going. These people are around well into the fourth century. Yeah. Well, so uh, the, I guess the question is to bring it back to you know the familiar topic of plagues. Uh, <laughs> there's this argument that um, that you might not have gotten the Protestant Reformation if you hadn't had the plague because the there was sort of a series of one two punches right that that first of all you had a lot of priests who died so you had a real manpower problem in the church you had uh, a lot of people who thought that because priests died that showed that this that the church's moral or divine authority was suspect you had people who thought that just because this plague was killing every third person or every fourth person that this meant God was punishing us, which meant that the church had led them astray. You had a bunch of, and then there's these more, I think, complicated arguments about how it led to a lot of corruption within the church and, and you know, the the bad popes, as it were. Um, and so then you have this situation that is just sort of ripe on the ground for the arrival of the Protestant Reformation. And I'm just wondering... If you had had the kind of plague that you had during the Black Death in the fourth century, you know, or the fifth century, would you have, you know, would the church have been less able of stamping out, you know, forget Gnosticism, just heresy in the way that, you know, and I'm not, I'm not just, I'm not being pejorative against Protestants in this sense. I'm just saying that from the perspective of a 14th or 15th century Catholic, Protestantism was heresy. Um, uh could you have seen the the church's sort of theological hegemony broken up earlier, or is that just sort of what if? Who cares? That's right? getting that's getting big time. What if? Um, and I'm trying to wrap my mind around it because I want to know, you know, if the the plague, the Black Death, was as bad or worse in Southern Europe, um, in places like Italy, as it was in in Northern Europe. So. Um, if that's a if it's a fundamental cause of of the Protestant Reformation, then why why isn't why doesn't Protestantism happen um, where the plague is just as bad, if if not worse? So I'm not sure that I I think there's a good sociological connection between the the plague and and Protestantism. Although you could you could say that um, you know, Protestantism is one of uh, kind of one wave of reform um, that happens within Christianity that that goes back really to the to the 11th century and you have kind of repeated um, waves of, of massive effort to to make Christianity more authentic more spiritual more focused on ordinary believers and most of those are we now think of as perfectly Catholic reform movements there's just um, this one that in the 16th century gets a little bit out of control and um, and ultimately develops a kind of different vision of, of authority um, that that ultimately leads to the the divisions between Catholicism Protestantism southern and northern Europe but I think the the sort of sociological causes of Protestantism are going to have to be found in uh, in northern Europe rather than the plague but I still think you can. Well, just say, I mean, again, I'm I'm not wedded to this theory in any stretch, but I mean, just in defense of it to a certain extent, the part of the argument would be. I, mean, I certainly think the pre the printing press has more to do 
with the success of Protestantism than than the plague or anything like that. But you asked, you know, why didn't it take place in the South? I, I think because that's the Catholic Church had a much stronger hold in Southern Europe than it did in Northern Europe, and we've, you know that was certainly true of Scandinavia and um, and other part, you know, and 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 so the further away you were in terms of political distance or actual just geographic distance, the easier it was for dissenting religious views to emerge, right? I mean, that that would be my sort of off-the-cuff thing. But anyway, I, we don't need to dwell on it because, you know, it, it becomes sort of what if Superman could fight the Hulk to a certain <laughs> extent, Which, right? I mean, if you don't like those kind of questions, I, I don't know what's wrong with you, right? <laughs> so at some point, I'm going to do a podcast on that question because <laughs> I use it as my stand-in for all of these thumb-sucking you know, angels on the head of a pin questions. So. My my boys who were, you may have heard, pulling each other's eyes out over there um, would definitely tune in for that that podcast. I, will, I have to find the right, the, the right guest. All right, so as we were saying before we started record, recording, I've been to Oklahoma. Um, I haven't spent a lot of time there. You're a lifelong Oklahoma guy, except for a brief sojourns to grad school in Washington, D.C. Um, uh Oklahoma kind of strikes me as a, it's a this is a little unfair to Oklahoma if you knew what I thought about Arkansas but it's a little like Arkansas in that um I've spent a lot of time in Arkansas um for you know just one step ahead of the law um but the um when you buy books travel books on the south or at least back in the 90s when I did and You'll find these books, or you'll find travel books for the South, for the West, for the Midwest, for the Southwest. You will, and none of them will claim Arkansas. <laughs> like, <laughs> and and uh, Oklahoma. I mean, like, do you consider yourself a Westerner? Do you consider Oklahoma a Western state, a Southern state, Southwest? I mean, are you just uh, this underappreciated appendage of Texas? Um, you know, uh, where do your cultural affinities go? You're breaking my heart here. <laughs> I don't know. I don't I'm just, know I'm just trying to pick a fight. <laughs> so, well, you've, you've succeeded. So if you really want to get on my nerves, call Oklahoma the Midwest, because I think if, if you do that, it reveals that, that you think everything between the, the Hudson river and the Bay bridge is basically this, this, uh, undifferentiated mass of, of, um, clingers, uh, and, and if you if you want to offend me, just ask if we're um, you know an appendage of of Texas. Um, the but I will I'll give you a pass because the the cultural you know locating the Oklahoma and the cultural geography of the U.S. is pretty tricky because we're we're not uh, Midwestern, right? We don't have the kind of um, upper Midwest Great Lakes, um, German Scandinavian um, influence. We're not uh, the South because we we weren't um, a state uh, during the Civil War, and there was some slavery in Oklahoma, but it was um, Native American tribes that owned small numbers of, of slaves. But we weren't really part of the South, um, although Eastern and Southeastern Oklahoma is sometimes called Little Dixie because it has the kind of physical geography of the South. It's It's sort of a last little extension almost of the Appalachians. It's it's mountainous and um, has a lot of cultural influence from the South. We're kind of the West, um, but 
you know, we're not a whole lot of uh, Rocky Mountains in Oklahoma. So um, we kind of fall in between. And so I think the Southern Plains um, is, is probably the most accurate. We're like Texas, just better. Um, it's, <laughs> it's sort of Texas with, you know, better football, less traffic, um, um, a little less obnoxious. Um, a little more quietly self-assured. Um, if Texas is really so self-assured, why do they have to talk about it all the time? Um, that baffles me. But um, but it is, in a lot of ways, sort of similar to Texas in that it's the Southern Plains. It's where the South and the true Deep South gives way to the West. Um, and it's this kind of unique um, kind of blend of those different influences with a lot of Native American. This is obviously Indian territory where... A uh, huge number of tribes are removed in the 19th century and, and ultimately forced to migrate um, to Oklahoma. So we have this really wonderful kind of mix of, of Native American traditions that go along with the, the cowboy traditions. And it's it's unique. Um, it's it's not, you know, not just like anywhere else. And one of the things I love about it is the, the physical geography uh, as well as the cultural geography. You can go from the the mountains that feel like the Appalachians to the, to the open plains, to the, the kind of craggy granite hills in the West that, that feel very Southwestern. Um, so it's all here. Does, um, is there an Oklahoma? I mean, I, I know, look, there, there are by my count, probably a half dozen to a dozen States that claim to have the best tradition for steak and all that. So let's just put that aside. Um, is there an Oklahoma version of like a Tex-Mex? Tex Is there some, you know, weird syncretic mongrel, you know, cuisine that comes from the intersection of different cultures in Oklahoma? I just, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm ignorant of it. So I'm just curious. Yeah. I mean, I think like in a lot of other respects, our, our culture is a, is a kind of a blend of these influences around us. And so even our barbecue um, isn't sort of one of the really distinct subcultures of barbecue. You know, Texas is beef and Memphis is the dry ribs and Kansas City's got the, the sweet sauce. And our barbecue is kind of a, a mix of all of those. So, um, you know, the, the, it's that, that unique blend um, of influences around us. Um, but if there's a if there's a but there's no Oklamex, right? There's I mean, no Okla, like... there's no Oklamex, but um you know, I think the the quintessential thing that that we you'd think about is maybe chicken fried steak, um, which makes no sense. But take a take a steak, bread it, and deep fry it, and then smother it in gravy, um, and keep your cardiologist happy and wealthy. Um, it works for me. Um, all right, so uh, Kyle, thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate it, um, and. Uh, um, hope to have you back at some point. Great fun. Okay, so uh, Dr. Harper has uh, left the virtual studio, and um, uh, you guys probably won't hear it, but every now and then, particularly on this podcast, for some reason, my brain just sort of checked out, and we had to cut out me saying, what the hell was I about to ask? And um, some of that may be left in here, I don't know, um, but it's worse than than what you've actually heard. And part of the reason why is that I get, unbelievably distracted looking at myself on this video where, um, you know, with a little more grease in my hair um, and a slightly, just slightly longer beard, I would look perfectly at home 
in a refrigerator box. Um, I, uh, I'm, I'm going to seed in ways that, uh, are, are somewhat dismaying. And I, you know, when you don't recognize yourself, um, um, it's just, it, it, you, you kind of like get distracted. Like I just am now. I mean, I'm, I, my neck beard is, is, it's coming in nicely. So, um, I'm thinking about actually having auctioning the ability to have my daughter cut my hair any way listeners want if we can raise enough money for chari- for for a charity. So uh, I'm going to think about that. I mean, I can't go completely bald because I have a huge misshapen gourd of a head and um, it will frighten small children. It is like um, – it's it's if it were like a nice smooth you know, uh, you know uh, Uncle Fenster whatever that guy's name was kind of thing or Curly from the Globetrotters I would go for it because I don't care and I you know hate caring about this stuff, but um, I would look more like um, I don't know uh, you know a Morlock or something some creature with night vision and but. I'll be happy to go with like a buzz cut and a mohawk for a little while. Uh, our friend Scott Linscombe did this to raise money for a local food kitchen, and I think it's a good idea. So um, I'm thinking about it. Stay tuned. You obviously will hear more about this. Uh, in other news, um, stay tuned for uh, the Friday Ruminant, which is the sort of audio G file, catch up on the week. Maybe we'll revisit some of these things. I wrote a piece for the website the other day on how we could accidentally stumble into a new deal um, if the Trump administration gets the decision about reopening the economy wrong. Um, And then I followed up with the Wednesday subscriber-only G-file talking about how um, maybe the best argument to fend off a new new deal is in the wake of the pandemic is to argue for a um, domestic Marshall plan. And maybe I'll talk about some of that stuff tomorrow. Anyway, um, I thought Harper was fun. It's great to get out of the normal, you know, pandemic epidemiology stuff. Um, And thanks to uh, you guys for being supportive throughout all of this. If you can subscribe uh, to the dispatch, we'd really appreciate it. I understand the dollars are scarce these days, so if you can't totally understand it, there's still a lot of great uh, original content that's faux free for everybody on the website, um, including, of course, like the Friday G-File and um, and Lyman's big piece on the World Health Organization. So go to thedispatch.com to check it out. Um, everything on the site is free, and uh, only some of the newsletters are for subscribers only. Oh, man, I almost forgot. Uh, We are heading uh, head on like a runaway freight train, like a 18-wheeler with no brakes uh, towards our 200th episode. And um, we have decided that we want to do, and we think we can get him back. He's game in theory, but everyone's schedule is so weird these days. And so we're thinking about getting Mike Gallagher back. Uh, to do another half-baked or even quarter-baked ideas episode. Uh, For listeners who don't know, that was one of our most downloaded episodes ever when uh, Congressman Mike Gallagher came on to discuss um, half-baked ideas. 
And these are ideas, uh, long-time listeners don't need to have it explained, but just in case you're a newbie, these are ideas that could be really cool. They just, they need a little more time in the oven. Um, and the reason why we got the idea to do a whole show dedicated to this was that Gallagher, who's a fun and wacky guy, uh, because he's just, he's like, I think drunk all of the time. Um, he, uh, he and I got into this long thing about, um, uh, peacefully annexing Greenland and, and then it kind of got caught wildfire and then of course Trump came along and, and embraced the idea much to the detriment of the possibility of this idea actually happening. But uh, we also discussed, you know, my longstanding desire for papal ninjas. Uh, we discussed letters of mark for computer hackers and pirates um, and all of that kind of stuff. And uh, also Gallagher's obsession with putting uh, chin-up bars or pull-up bars in every airport waiting area in the country. And... Um, and other great ideas. So anyway, if you have a half-baked idea, quarter-baked idea, I don't think we need any raw dough ideas. You know, um, it, there needs to be some plausibility that in some timeline in a universe sort of like ours, this idea could actually work. You know, if it's just basically how, uh, I don't know, that, you know, uh, we should all have transporter devices. Well, you know, that's great, but, you know, it has to be some sort of idea that that kind of works. Um, it can't be, you know, vanilla ice cream because vests have no sleeves. So uh, send us your half-baked ideas, your quarter-baked ideas. Uh, I believe our email address is theremnantpod at gmail.com. Uh, and uh, you can send them to attention to Nick because he's the one who's going to be sorting through all of them. And uh, we look forward to that and stay tuned. So anyway, uh, with that, I'll see you next time. Non Maywaderis, podcast a mess. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.